Welcome to Eureka Nerd. With me, Will Davis, reaching a base in baseball without being put out. And me, Leah Richards, a large metal box with a lock. You might be wondering why I am covered in dirt all up my front and why Leah is being hijacked by bandits in masks. It's because we are safe. Very safe. And we're talking about saving the world. We've talked about it before. We're probably going to talk about it again. But saving the world is a cause that is near and dear to my heart. And I think it's something that a lot of science concerns itself with. If we're going to learn things about the world we're living in, why not try and learn things that are going to improve it? You'd think that would be the case, but there is a lot of science happening out there which doesn't really seem to advance the world in any real way, which is half the stuff that we talk about. I mean, sometimes you do science just because you're interested, and that's also valid. That is absolutely valid. But some of the stories that we're discussing today have all come together within the last couple of weeks, really complement each other, to emphasise the point that we can save the world. We've mentioned it before, we'll mention it again. The world can be saved. We have the technology. In fact, I'm going to call on everyone listening to this, like we talk about the stories, but please read more about them and then think what you could do to save the world. Approach some of the scientists that we discuss and ask, can I help save the world? Approach the people in charge of making legislation for your local area, region or nation and see what they can do to help enact this stuff. In fact, if you and a bunch of your friends get together and, say, march down the streets with placards and catchy chants, enthusiastically promoting the idea of saving the world, I think that could really catch on. There's a lot of ways you can go about saving the world. We're going to tell you about a few that have been being investigated. And we start off really top of the bill with, well, saving the world in the most direct sense. Wouldn't you know, if we were to rely on wind and solar power, we could just about save the world right now. That's wind and solar power alone that are being looked at in this analysis of weather data by Carnegie Institution for Science. Because this is looking at weather data, they've not considered other forms of renewable energy like water power, like tidal power. Geothermal as well. But they've come to the conclusion that to meet all of the US's electricity needs with wind and solar power alone would take some extensive and expensive infrastructure changes. But you can get pretty close... In their analysis of 36 years' worth of weather data, Carnegie's Ken Caldera and three Carnegie-affiliated energy experts, Matthew Shainer, Stephen Davis, and Matthew Lewis, have come to the conclusion that reliable electricity generation with 80% solar and wind would require huge investments in continent-scale transmission grids with energy storage and, like you say, a lot of investment. But getting close to that is a really good step to my mind. They highlight that the peak generating ability for solar power comes in June and July, so summer, and wind resources peak in March and April, which then die off towards the end of the summer, so it's breezy in the spring and sunny in the summer. Whilst those two timeframes alone are the best times for sun and wind power, it's still sunny lots of the rest of the year and it's still quite windy. There's still going to be some sun and wind power generated, the better solar panel technology gets, the more effective they're going to be at generating power. I know for certain that houses in the UK that have solar panels tend to still be generating electricity even when it's overcast. Yeah, there's some parts of the UK that 
it's genuinely rained on for like 300 days straight. The Lake District is very wet. I was thinking about Wales, so. But yeah, they round out this article by saying that our work indicates wind and solar would need to be supplemented by some kind of dispatchable power, like natural gas or huge amounts of storage. The natural gas emits greenhouse gases and the storage is super expensive, so we need to search for better ways of supplying electricity when the sun's not shining and the wind is not blowing. That is a safe, a cautious note on which to end. I'm taking from this that we can get like three quarters of the way to renewable power for the continental United States, and that is a huge achievement. Like, imagine how much carbon dioxide, how many greenhouse gases are being emitted across the continental United States, and then reduce that by 70%. Bearing in mind they haven't mentioned hydroelectric power at all in this, which is as often as not used as storage. You can use excess energy in the system to pump water up behind your dam and then release it when you need. It's not particularly efficient, but it's better than nothing, and the US has got some pretty stonking hydroelectric power plants. And even as wide as the US is, it's still got quite a bit of coast, and you can put lots of tidal generators up and down the length of those. There are people trying to develop tidal power generators that won't cause as much environmental disruption. I mean, even the Great Lakes are so large that they have their own tides. If you head north of Chicago, just about into Canada, they're right there. That's another option to deliver power right into the heart of the city. And this was the Carnegie interpretation. The University of California, Irvine, have put out another press release working from the same data saying that four-fifths of the US electricity demand could be met by wind and solar, which is a kind of positive spin that I would like to see put on it, of, hey, we're getting really close to potentially saving the world. Don't worry about the 25% that is still going to need fossil fuels or nuclear or storage. Let's save the world as much as we can right now. Stephen Davis, UCI Associate Professor of Earth System Science and co-author of the study, notes that the fact that we could get 80% of our power from wind and solar alone is really encouraging. Five years ago, many people doubted that these resources could account for more than 20 or 30%. Now, this is a different press release for the same study, so they've still noted that being able to meet that 80% of demand would include a national grid, which is a considerable undertaking on the continental scale. I mean, we've got a national grid in the UK, but we are really quite small. We could fit like a dozen times just into Texas. Let me pitch it to you this way. Huge investment in jobs, in infrastructure, in people's training, in a lot of the industries that America's already built on in terms of like metal refinement, construction, cross-state communication... There's a lot of ways that this could be spun to, I think, really appeal to the heartlands. Like, say, you want to stop working on that oil rig and giving yourself a lot of laundry to do and instead can work building construction rigs for our national electricity grid with which we are going to save the world. And what you get out of it is you don't drown New York. That should get the voters in New York out at least. You don't drown half of California. You don't drown most of the watershed of the Mississippi. Oh yeah, New Orleans is not looking good in projected models right now. Like, those half-dozen states that the Mississippi goes through would be so screwed. 
by sea level rise. And we can avoid that by producing less carbon. The uh, studies do note that fossil fuel-based electricity production is responsible for about 38% of US carbon emissions. So how about we get that down to just 8%? And the other thing that these studies haven't looked at is the mitigating effect of lowering energy demands by attempts to get people to lower their overall energy consumption and continuing advances in technology to make everything more energy efficient overall. Yeah, the more money that we invest into the infrastructure and the solar panels and the turbines and the hydroelectric, the more technology is going to come up to make it even easier to save the world. And this isn't just true of America. If we have a look at the next press release from Imperial College London, which seems a bit more quizzical in their phrasing of how sure can we be about the future, their models suggest that certain mixes of energy provision to reduce greenhouse gas emission and carbon dioxide release across the UK is going to be very hard to meet by 2050. But you can get most of the way there, and even if you've not completely saved the world in the next 30 years and it takes you 40, 50 years to do it, I'm willing to wait. The study is advising a little bit of caution when picking your models for predicting the role of renewable energy in the future. But having looked at wind, water and solar power as a model for 100% power generation by 2050, again, the same things as in the American models come up of needing to increase storage facilities. I mean, batteries are always getting better. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, is what it comes down to, but you do need backup energy sources for these sort of things. They don't necessarily have to be fossil fuel based. Which is where doubling down in hydroelectric could come in. The team does mention that including nuclear and biomass plants as backup energy sources made a model a lot closer to actually meeting the demands, with uh, 77% wind, water and solar, that back up nuclear and biomass, around 9% of annual UK demand could remain unmet under that model. But again, this isn't taking into account things like actually being able to decrease the overall demand. And they say that 9% of annual UK demand remaining unmet could lead to power outages and economic damage. What I'm hearing there is 90% reduction in fossil fuel power stations. Like even if that 10% is fossil fuel, then it's a huge improvement on the situation we're currently in. I'm going to say it's a pretty big step towards saving the world. That's based on UK systems. We've had the other study looking at US systems. Other systems across Europe already integrating more solar and more wind power, or more tidal. And I think with the connected systems that you're seeing across mainland Europe, in Nordic countries especially, where it can be at least reliably wet and reliably volcanic if they've got any geothermal activity, if we can get storage good enough, if we can get the batteries good enough, there are plenty of countries that have got far more capacity for generating renewable energy than they actually have for using it. Iceland has access to vast amounts of geothermal power because they're just right on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge right there. They're made of Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And very few people for the amount of space they've got. They've got a lot of wind, a lot of weather, a whole bunch of volcanoes sat underneath them. If you can just get a big container ship full of batteries that you can ship on down to your neighbours and just plug it in, every nation and every region has got access to different options for making this happen. In the UK, we can grow a lot of things, which could be useful for biomass, 
Apart from transporting it around, which you don't necessarily need to do, that's carbon neutral because all the carbon that's released when you burn it has been fixed from the atmosphere by the plant as it grows. And if you look at places like Australia, which have just installed that large Tesla battery system to basically smooth over the gaps in any electrical system failures that occur throughout their country, and wouldn't you know, their battery system has kicked in and has functioned very well, came in under budget, came in ahead of schedule, and it was built by a literal James Bond villain. So if the rest of us good guys get on to fixing the world, then who knows what we're capable of. There are definitely people who will take exception to suggesting that Elon Musk isn't a good guy, but there's grey areas there, right? He certainly seems to think of himself as a good guy, as many villains do, but... He's just started selling flamethrowers to people on the internet, and that is literally the move from the supervillain playbook. <laughs> Hank Scorpio does it in The Simpsons. I don't know what else to tell oh, you. Oh, yeah, and he's literally a Bond villain. Yeah. But enough about people who would seize the world and use it for their own nefarious means. Let's get back to saving the world. We mentioned a lot of biomass and a lot of tree facts there. And wouldn't you know that new research from the Wildlife Conservation Society has shown that, you know, forests are really quite good for the planet, the climate, for you as a person as well. The person listening to this, yes, you. And they're even good for an economy. The value to the economy is not the first thing I look at when I'm trying to decide if something's a good idea or not. I try and consider other factors before the money, but in terms of tourism, in terms of preventing damage to lives and property through massive mudslides, forests are really good value. And that says nothing about the biomes that they sustain, which might contribute somewhat to tourism, but also when it comes to pharmaceutical research and development. There's a lot of plant compounds and animal compounds that are powering anti-cancer drugs and curing all kinds of diseases that we wouldn't have found if we just steamrolled the entire Amazon. The amount of biodiversity in Earth's rainforests? I mean, if we can get in there and study like everything that's there, who knows what we could learn? We could figure out regrowing limbs and stuff. There's some weird stuff deep in the woods. And Professor James Watson of the Wildlife Conservation Society and the University of Queensland says that as vital carbon sinks and habitats for millions of people and imperiled wildlife, it is well known that forest protection is essential for any environmental solution. Yet not all forests are equal. Forest conservation must be prioritised based on the relative values, and Earth's remaining intact forests are the crown jewels, ones that global climate and biodiversity policies must now emphasise. And they have focused on intact forests being ones that haven't been logged burned, otherwise destroyed, because primary forest, the old growth forest, the stuff that has been well established under its own steam for hundreds, thousands of years, has a very different profile to the stuff that we can plant or that will grow back. The amount of biodiversity in secondary rainforest that has regrown in areas where primary rainforest has been destroyed is so much less than in the primary rainforest, because... Younger trees grow more densely, so there's less light getting down to the ground level. Younger trees are smaller, so bigger animals can't use them the same way they use more mature trees. Rainforests, particularly a lot of hardwood, a lot of very slow-growing plant life, because secondary rainforests tend to be more dense and impenetrable than the primary rainforest, where there's a patch of secondary forest 
between areas of primary forest, the habitat is still fragmented because especially the largest animals can't move through the secondary rainforest. It's like a natural barrier. It is. It's like building a road or just having a huge patch of bare ground. It's barely an improvement. Hmm. We have to preserve the stuff that we haven't damaged yet. We can't just put it all back later because it will not be the same. The press release does list some key benefits of intact forests. Some of which we've mentioned already, like climate change, water availability, biodiversity, indigenous cultures as well. People who haven't been contacted by other societies are moving in and deciding, you know what, this place where you've been living for millennia, we're going to put some cows here now. And also human health, because, again, if we really need to sell this to people in terms of like the economic benefit... It'll make some high-profile, high-value drugs, probably, if that's really what it takes to sell saving the world to you. And to quote Tom Evans, WCS Director of Forest Conservation and Climate and joint lead author of the study, Even if all global targets to halt deforestation were met, humanity might be left with only degraded, damaged forests in need of costly and sometimes unfeasible restoration, open to a cascade of further threats and perhaps lacking the resilience needed to weather the stress of climate change. This is a huge gamble to take for conservation, for climate change, and for some of the most vulnerable human communities on the planet. Our research shows that a remedy is possible, but we need to act while there are still intact forests to save, and they do, even in the press release, list some things that we should be taking into account Literal policy steps like creating new standard metrics of intactness that can be used to raise awareness of the importance of forest quality and help target action towards the most intact places. Like you're mentioning about the regrown forest, the difference between primary and secondary ecologies. Embedding intact forests into UN frameworks, supporting climate agreements, supporting local and global forest policies, supporting efforts to restore and make degraded forests more productive whilst conserving at-risk intact systems. Lots of ways in which policymakers and people who act upon that policy can, if they choose to, and if they are told to, and if we give them every good reason to, save the world. So, let's... And we have focused on talking about rainforest here, because that's something I have a little bit of knowledge about. It's also something near and dear to many people's hearts. It's big and impressive, and it is the most biodiverse habitat. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's the thing that focus is drawn to because it's big and shiny in the way of many conservation efforts being drawn towards charismatic megafauna. A lot of charismatic megafauna happen to live in rainforests. The temperate rainforest around the Pacific Northwest, temperate deciduous forests in Europe and elsewhere, the taiga across northern Eurasia, they all have this same role as really important reservoirs of species, of people in vulnerable communities, of interesting and probably useful science stuff, and as huge carbon sinks. And that goes without mentioning the effect that they have on local weather as well, the weather that is produced by forests, because that's kind of how it works, and how not having those forests around is going to severely impact the local ecology. And as we are as a planet experiencing climate change, one of the things that causes is more extreme weather events. Something that can help mitigate the impact of extreme weather events is established forests. They interrupt the path of water from the sky into the soil, where it can cause all sorts of problems with flooding. They fix soil so that it doesn't just 
slide off hills when it gets waterlogged. Look after the woods, and the woods will look after you. Fingers crossed, anyway. And as one of the aspects that the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis have been working with in their latest press release as well, on models to show how to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade. This is one of the goals of the Paris Agreement. Most scientific studies mainly look at limiting warming to 2 degrees. And this study is looking at 1.5 degrees by 2100, which you might remember is 50 years more than the British projected systems for energy balance. And in integrating several computer models all together to produce different scenarios that would limit warming by the end of the century to 1.5 degrees centigrade, the paper highlights what they've called Shared Socioeconomic Pathways, or SSPs. The SSPs, which were previously developed by the IIASA and other KIPAN organisations, look at different ways in which the world and society could progress, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel, except in the adventure you save the world, or don't. You know, those ones with, like, six different pages that say, you die, start over, only we don't get to start over because this is real life. Turn to page 11. You are eaten by a Gru. They modelled several scenarios, looking at ones where the world really aggressively pursues sustainability, ones where economic and population growth continue in line with historic trends. I think that's something we're not hoping for. I seem to remember someone saying about five years ago that we definitely reached peak child. So the population will continue to grow, but not in the same sort of exponential way. That feels like there's a lot of variables which could affect it either way. So I'm personally unsure about how much stock we should be putting in the idea that things will continue as they have done. Prediction is difficult. No one can see the future. Like, I can ask my tarot cards how we're going to do at limiting global warming, but, I mean, there's a concern that what will come out is the tower, and it's a bad scene. But these computer models have suggested that the scenarios where warming could be limited to that 1.5 degrees that the Paris agreements have got us shooting for. It includes a rapid shift away from fossil fuel use towards low-carbon energy sources, overall lowered energy use, and the removal of CO2, so carbon capture systems and regrowing. Huge amounts of plants and stuff definitely will help with that. That's a whole thing. If only someone out there was doing more research on what would happen if we were to move towards low-carbon energy systems like wind, wave, and solar, and the importance of forests in carbon capture and climate stability. Oh wait, we already talked about those. It's almost as though this is turning into a five-step plan for saving the world. You're welcome. The successful scenarios also included greenhouse gas emissions beginning to decline by about 2030, Zero net greenhouse emissions can be reached between 2055 and 2075, and energy demand being limited by mostly improving energy efficiency measures, which I think is going to be the way to go. We're not going to have fewer people demanding energy. We're not going to have people mostly demanding overall less energy. We just need to make the energy we do need to use work harder. And go that much further as well, instead of pumping lots of heat through a house and then straight out the window, improving insulation, improving how much energy can be recaptured from, say, integrated hydroelectric systems into national water supply, and water processing, and waste processing as well, and then reducing the amount of food waste, because if you reduce food waste, 
then there's less food being grown and less fertilizer, less water, less energy being put into food which isn't being eaten, and it just, it's good behavior. We just need everyone to buck up and do their bit. Do you think anyone's actually going to do that? I mean, we'll just have to see, but there are enough people to make it happen if we cooperate. We've all gotten used to taking carrier bags to the supermarket instead you of just using that. plastic I ones. have not. We are in the process of getting used to taking our bags for life. These big behaviour changes can be done. They can be integrated into a society. We've seen how much behaviour can change by just the introduction of a new phone. So I think it can be done. But I think it is a mistake to put it all down to the individual. It has to be looked at on as big a scale as possible. So if you are able to resist the temptation to go, not in my backyard, to the new wind farm that they're proposing in your area, then try that. Do it. You have the option. A final quote from this press release is, The study provides decision makers and the public with key information about some of the enabling conditions to achieve such stringent levels of climate protection. And I just gotta hope they do it. Because even as much as an optimist as I am, the scientific community as a whole is, uh... They're speaking with a voice of caution. There's a lot of stuff to worry about, and they're not pulling their punches on that. And it seems as though, at least within the scientific community, a lot of people agree about it. Because the science pretty much universally checks out that, hey... Things are gonna get real weird and real bad unless we do something to change our behaviours soon. Which is maybe not the most elegant way of putting it. In fact, I'd leave that up to the scientists who have written the Scientists' Warning to Humanity report, which apparently is gaining momentum and is one of the most talked about papers since altmetric records of academic publishing began. 25 years after the first Scientists' Warning to Humanity, this is a second notice. So... Altmetric records, this isn't something which uh, non-academics are likely to have encountered. It's kind of like the billboard charts for nerds. Altmetric can track how many times a link has been clicked, how many times a paper has been downloaded, where it's been shared, what are the most popular places that it is being embedded or that it is being uploaded to. For example, if something is performing really well on Twitter or in a specific country, then that can all be tracked by Altmetric. It's a big statistics database, really. And in the sphere of academic publishing, it also tracks the number of times a paper has been referenced by other papers. Of course, this second notice is going above and beyond being referenced in other papers. It's being discussed in Polish universities and government. It's being discussed in Canadian and Israeli legislature. It's having a lot of reach. It's having a lot of impact, we hope. And 25 years after their first warning, the scientists behind this new paper are calling for policymakers, for people in charge of shaping the behaviour and outcomes of national and local environmental efforts to please just save the world. And they do give some ways in which they encourage that being done. And there are 22,000 expert endorsements and co-signatories to the paper online. The press release mentions that the report has prompted almost 9,000 tweets, which I don't think sounds like a lot to people who are into Twitter. Yeah, I mean, a video of Kim Kardashian skiing has 11,000 likes at the moment. So this is, I think, highlighting 
a problem which science communicators often discuss about you can communicate science to other scientists and other people who are interested in science already. Getting the audience wider is always the challenge. Yes. I mean, if Kim Kardashian West would like to take up science communication, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who'd help her because that sort of reach is invaluable. So, I mean, Kim, Kanye, if you want to talk about science, I think we'd be up for that, right? I think we'd be we'd up We'd be for down that. to hang and chat about climate change. Let's do it. Call us. Also, I'll get some tips about contouring because, like, have you seen her before and after pictures? It's a transformation. I'll have to give those a look afterwards. But for now, let's channel all of our energy into one last way in which we can probably do something to save the world, and that is to not be afraid. Because if you are scared, you might not be making the best, most informed choices. Now, this first press release on this subject, the headline is Neuroticism could be sleeper effect in Trump and Brexit campaigns. The Society for Personality and Social Psychology have published this research looking at the ways voters with more neurotic personality traits are more likely to vote for Donald Trump or to leave the EU. Now, I would like to point out that I know plenty of very, very neurotic people who are perfectly sensible and would have not believed Boris Johnson's terrible lies. The lies themselves contained terrible things and they were also poorly constructed and poorly delivered they were terrible lies in every sense they would have looked at the side of that bus and gone really though so i think describing this as neuroticism is maybe casting aspersions on perfectly sensible neurotic people well let's leave it up to the words of lead study author martin obshonka phd a psychologist and associate professor at queensland university of technology in australia who says our study reveals how neuroticism, or psychological hardship, is shaping the global political landscape. One could call this irrational voting behaviour, because the surprising success of Trump and Brexit weren't predicted by models that relied on rational understanding of voters. You know what I'm saying about things being real hard to predict? Well, it turns out that if people are being irrational, then that's going to be very hard to predict. Also, makes you question how much we should be held hostage to the lies and propaganda by those who would knowingly seek to weaponize that fear and misunderstanding. Now, the press release from the Queensland University of Technology, which is coverage of the same study, but from the researchers rather than the journal that's publishing it, has gone instead with 2016 Brexit Trump election results driven by fear and loathing, which is more reasonable. A bit more evocative. But also doesn't pathologize the problem in quite the same way as calling it neurotic does, mm. for my money. They include the same very smart chloropleth maps comparing the self-reported feelings of fear in various voting districts across the UK and the US with those same districts' voting patterns in the EU referendum in the UK and in the presidential election in the US. I bet if they went back and had a look at the data now... That fear rating would be way up across the board. And if it's not, people haven't been paying attention, I feel like. Not even if they are paying attention, as Martin Lepshanka says in the second press release. Our study adds a new perspective in showing the link from regional fear-based personalities, which also fits with recent observations in the global rise of populism. The study has noted that regions such as those 
which were formerly very industrialised and are now in economic decline, are primed to be afraid about the future and will therefore respond better to those sort of populist campaigns, even if it's not actually the sensible choice. Yeah, I mean, that's playing out in Italy at the moment with a political situation which we do not have the time to get into now, but it is concerning from a distance. So, hey, another way in which we can save the world is demand honesty from your politicians and rigour and intellectual integrity. And be brave. Don't let your choices be dictated by fear for the future. If your chosen reading is The Sun or The Daily Mail and they're telling you every day that immigrants are coming to steal your jobs, it sort of starts to seem sensible that you'd go, oh no, we don't want anything to do with that nasty EU. So instead, choose to vote bravely and save your money at least. Go digital. Save on the paper. There you go. There's a nice little economically and ecologically <laughs> friendly behaviour. Stop buying the Daily Mail so they stop printing it. Also stop visiting their website so they stop getting um, advertising money from that. That's a good That's a good tip. So that's all been... I mean, we've tried to be positive about it, but some of that's been pretty bleak. I hope everyone at home listening to this has stuck with us, demanding that we all save the world together, because it, it seems hard sometimes. It seems maybe a little intimidating. It's super duper hard. We can only do as much as we can do, but it's worth trying. And we can all do more if we're working together. Speaking of working together, have you heard? Pro-diversity policies make companies more innovative and profitable. You mean by not excluding huge sections of the working populace based on their skin colour, disability, gender, sexual identity, you can incorporate more diverse arrays of ideas and the economic benefits that come with that, and just giving them like a modicum of human decency is also better for them as people? To quote... Jing Zhao, Assistant Professor of Finance in the School of Business at Portland State University. Top corporate leaders, academics and policymakers have long been wondering about the real economic benefits of corporate diversity policies. Many didn't see how hiring a more diverse workforce positively affected shareholder value. Now we have strong evidence that creating a more diverse workplace today results in more innovative outcomes for companies tomorrow. Now, let's talk common sense. Do you think that maybe hiring and involving more people with a wider range of life experiences might provide some value and help your company to innovate? Because that seems obvious. That doesn't seem like the sort of thing that someone should have had to look up for businesses to be like, oh no, actually that seems sensible. Which says a lot about the human capacity for prejudice. But now we've got some numbers to show people when they go, oh, well, how does it help me to hire more people from more diverse backgrounds and with more diverse perspectives? How it helps you, buddy, aside from just being the right thing to do, it will make you more successful. So stop fannying about and get on with it. I'll have to find that onion headline again of, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. That's not even what it's about. You don't you don't even necessarily have to care about them, but enabling them to come and make you money. But yeah, enabling enabling people to come and contribute to your damn system will help the system. It's it's that simple. I think we all need to unwind after this shocking revelation of 
people having ideas, even if they are other people. How best to unwind from all of this heavy, heavy science, then? Maybe you should listen to the boffins at the University of British Columbia who have found that puppies help people. Specifically, therapy dogs help stressed university students. I'm assuming they've focused on university students because they're at a university, so they can just bring in an assortment of students and give them some dogs and they can hang out. And they will be reliably stressed. Students pretty consistently are, in my experience. And I mean, not just about the work. I don't think any of my close friends at uni were unstressed about other aspects of their lives, be that personal relationships or general career prospects. Or or global collapse, as we've highlighted already. The UBC Department of Psychology has been looking into how useful therapy dogs might be. Therapy dog sessions are becoming more popular on university campuses, but there's been surprisingly little research on how much attending a single drop-in therapy dog session actually helps students. That's a quote from Emma Ward-Griffin, the study's lead author and research assistant at the UBC Department of Psychology. They've found that they have a measurable positive effect on the well-being of the students attending them. So... If you've got a dog, go give it a cuddle. Or, well, they don't really like cuddles. Go spend some quality time with your dog. If you have a friend who has a dog that they'll let you hang out with, maybe do that. If you're a student listening to this and you need to go meet some dogs, consider this your doctor's note. We at Eureka Nerd endorse dog time. I don't know if the same effect comes of, like, watching dog videos on YouTube or not, but... I'm willing to give it a go. I certainly felt more relaxed after watching the agility competitions from Crufts. Want to watch some fun dog videos now? Yeah, let's do that. Get the outro done. Okay, we have been EurekaDog at EurekaDog at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerd at gmail.com. Woof. It's not even Eureka, it's EurekaDog. We have... I've been Will... You've been dog. Dog, dog. Dog, dog. Dog! Dog at dogcast.co.uk. And at dog on Twitter. I wonder if that's someone. I'm going to look it up right now. Search Twitter. At dog. Okay, that's just a person. Don't bother. How much money do you think you could sell that account for? I don't know. Well, if at dog on Twitter doesn't have anything to say to you, then you can find us at Eureka Nerdcast and at Eureka Nerd at gmail.com. But until next time, that's all from me. And all from me. Bye-bye.